And what I discovered was that the narrative that I had been kind of taught that the church started off really good and we could trust it in the early years, but then it eventually started to get worse and worse and worse until Luther saved everybody um, was, was just a false narrative because a number of the things that as a evangelical, I disagreed with Catholicism on were already firmly in place long before the canon of scripture was determined, long before the Nicene Creed was written. And so what I just came to realize was I, I can't find a good place to draw a line through history and say, okay, from this point forward, we don't trust the church anymore. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. My guest today is Doug Beaumont. I'm excited to have Doug on because Douglas Beaumont is a writer, teacher, and speaker on topics in Christian apologetics, philosophy of religion, sacred scripture, and Catholic theology. He is on today to share his very public and well-regarded transition from uh, evangelical Christianity to Catholicism. And I'll go ahead and share with my audience. Well, before I do that, I'll say, how are you, Doug? Thanks for coming on. Uh, doing great, Reed. <laughs> Good to be on. Yeah, man, thanks. Um, I, I'll go ahead and share with the audience. Uh, I first came across your work and who you are from a from a Catholic friend in um, California, and uh, I wasn't sure if he was sending that to me to like, hey, maybe you should think about this, brother, or um, uh, or just to kind of get my thoughts on it. Um, I'll assume. Uh, the latter, but uh, uh, but so I was fascinated by your story, um, how you went through evangelical seminary, how you spent most of your young adult life uh, in that in that school, and then as you studied deeper, uh, came to the conclusion that you felt like Catholicism uh, was the best route in which to express the Christian faith. So I'm really excited about jumping into that topic with you. Um, I'll just say this kind of uh, at the at the beginning. I wanted to joke with you about living in California because that's now the uh, what all the red state people are doing. But yeah, we're but right oh, now oh, we're about do. to experience the hardest <laughs> freeze of the year. So I don't know how much I could joke with you about that. But uh, what's it like in California these days? Um, yeah, so the uh, the temperature depends on kind of where you are uh, politically and uh, <laughs> yeah. as far as snow goes. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting. I, I lived in California for most of my life, right up until I turned 30 before I went to North Carolina. And I really had almost no idea that the rest of the country was so down on California's politics because I grew up kind of in the mountains. I grew up in the farmland where, you know, we, we had better rednecks than I found in South Carolina. Yeah, most people don't know um, this. Yeah, like I would say the vast majority of the state is actually quite conservative. Yeah. We, we just get wrecked every year by, you know, the, the kind of power center cities that, have, that are super liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, so, you know, around me, everything's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've got let's go Brandon flags uh, flying all over the place and uh, <laughs> the weather's nice and warm. That's um, funny. But it doesn't take very long to get outside of here and, and be in you know liberal view or uh well, sure. And, and I guess more importantly, I guess I should have specified, but I guess more importantly, I am curious about like kind of what's going on in terms of like lockdown uh, mandates and all that stuff, because we we kissed our face mask goodbye um, around the first time that really everybody started doing it and, and haven't looked back. And so we've pretty much it's really weird. It's almost like there's two realities. We're we're living in. A world where we're cognizant of COVID, right? Where we want to be mindful and we want to be careful and we want to be considerate. Um, and, uh, you know, now we're debating, like, uh, should I get the vaccine? Should I good not get the vaccine? So we're still kind of in that world. But um, uh, but 
for all intents and purposes, if I was just be honest, we've kind of moved back to life as normal. But I but I've wondered like, is it like that in California? Because it sure doesn't seem like that. I mean, it seems like it they keep on, on rewinding. What's it just that? depends on where you go. Yeah, I would say you know the uh, the the standard is to pretty much follow the mask mandate. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's minimal like it's it's you know the the what what can you get away with um you know you walk into most restaurants they don't really care if you're wearing it or not um and and the same with most businesses i would say too and then you know all i've got to do is drive up the street and there's two or three like whole cities that are extremely conservative and they're kind of like you're saying you know they yeah. haven't had the masks on for months so it, it just it just changes it's all over the place california yeah. is a very mixed bag so sure um you know, you can kind of get away with whatever lifestyle you want, which is sometimes good and sometimes bad. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I understood. Yeah. So I went to school in Santa Cruz um, at oh, yeah. a school called Bethany University. And so uh, my first experience with what kind of what you're alluding to is I drove probably like 45 minutes away from Santa Cruz, California, you know, like right there on the ocean, 45 minutes, you go uh, east and you get Modesto. And Modesto is like a different world from like what you think California is. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's where I am now. So um, it's, yeah, it's farmers, it's, you know, Trump flags, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely nothing like the coast. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, cool. So um, I, I, I want to just say this to kind of preface what the, the real conversation is about today. Um, I believe that we're living at a really interesting time in our nation. And I really, do and I think you would concur with this the, the the only cure for so much of what's going on in our nation is is the church. I don't know if you've uh, become alert to this, but right now in the interwebs, a uh, a video is circulating around with Joe Rogan and a a doctor. Um, and I'll, I'll get his name real quick because I don't want to mess it up. So Robert Malone, and uh, there's a clip that's gone viral about mass formation psychosis, um, and that that uh, clip just simply means is really all about how you can easily hypnotize a huge, large group of people under certain circumstances. Okay. So I won't go too, too much into it, but it's an absolutely fascinating concept. This is something that people like Jordan Peterson have been talking about and um, other people like um, uh, Eric Wein Weinstein and, uh, and perhaps others anyway. Uh, uh, so this, this right now is kind of like on the, the tip of everyone's tongue as it relates to COVID and some of the things of, uh, overreach of the government and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, uh, regardless of any of the political side of it, it's a fascinating concept. Um, but if it's to be believed, it is that we are easily susceptible to lies and manipulation, which I believe, um, I, I think that's, I think most people, even if you're not a Christian and you're watching this podcast, you would, you would agree that we are susceptible to manipulation, that kind of thing. Um, and, and I, I believe the only cure for that is the truth. And I think we would both say, we happen to believe that the, tr the church has cornered the market on that, that, that all truth is God's truth. Um, and therefore I think, uh, that it's, that it's time for the church to shine like never before in, in our culture, in our present atmosphere. Um, but I will be totally honest with you and say that from my personal experience and my personal opinion, for whatever that's worth, I think the evangelical church has done a really good job of not making um, a cultural impact outside of pop culture Christianity and maybe even catalyzed um, the, the secular notion of reality that our, that our um, world kind of promotes right now and not done a really good enough job of being good apologists and being Christian worldview promoters. 
Um, so therefore, the one thing I have to say is I think the Catholic Church is perhaps doing a better job at this or has historically done a better job than Christian evangelicals at really being a force for um, good in the, in the world. Um, I will never forget, this is a little anecdotal, so forgive me, but I will never forget in the midst of uh, the Da Vinci Code. I don't know if you remember like when that first came out. So (laughs) I I was flipping through TV channels and I went through the Christian evangelical TV channels, went through the TBNs, the Daystar and all that stuff. And this is not to to dismiss them too easily nonetheless, um, but to just simply say that when I was going through them, I got just kind of more of the same stuff. And then I turned it on EWTN, which is a Catholic channel, and I heard a Catholic priest standing up and um, declaring uh, the divinity of Christ in the face of the Da Vinci Code. And I thought to myself, boy, these guys got it. They understand it. They they know what's going on in the culture, and they understand why we should be promoting these ideas and why we should be, um, you know, the church should be at the center of declaring these theological, doctrinal concepts that matter. And then I hear in the evangelical church, oh, we don't need your doctrine, and leave that out, at, you know, at the door, and we just want the Bible, forget theology, and all that kind of stuff, which are these sentiments that just drive me insane because people don't really know what they mean when they say those things. So needless to say. I, I want to express an immense respect for the Catholic faith while also saying I, I have firm beliefs, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm an evangelical, but I also believe that if we're going to make a difference in what's going on in the culture, we need to express a, a unity, not a false unity, but a unity. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, historically, obviously, the Catholic Church has been around a lot longer, so yeah. we, we have a much deeper store to, you know, go into, and we're not having to reinvent ourselves so often. So I think we can spend more time using those resources to deal with the changing world. Um, but I will also say, you know, that a, a huge part of my formation was uh, from evangelicals within evangelicalism. Um, you know, the work that I did at Southern Evangelical Seminary has influenced me more, um, you know, than anything really in my, in my current spiritual mm-hmm. life. Um, I do feel like I've taken it farther. I, I feel like I've gone into realms that uh, evangelicals, you know, kind of fear to tread. Um, but, you know, the, the kinds of things you're talking about, I mean, that that was really where my attitude on a lot of that stuff was formed. You know, the, yeah. the, the emphasis on truth, the emphasis on knowing reality, the emphasis on being able to argue coherently, you know, for our faith and, and not just check our brains in at the door. Um, you know, there are plenty of evangelicals out there like that. Sure. Um, but you're right. If, if you kind of look at it from the, you know, what do you see in the typical evangelical Christian bookstore versus the typical Catholic bookstore? Yeah, there's a big difference. Um, but I do think also, though, a lot of that really just goes into the fact that historically the church has been around for 2000 years. Um, you know, we've got great writers from the third century and last year. <laughs> yeah, there's a deep tradition. Um, yeah. And, and there's, you know, there are plenty of Catholics that don't have any idea what they're talking about. And, <laughs> sure. you know, they're, they're just as bad with, you know, uh, if, if an evangelical says, just give me the Bible, I don't want theology, you know, they'll or just give me, you know, mass and don't give me theology. So it's a human problem. I don't think it's, it's something that evangelicals or Catholics have a corner on. 
yeah, for sure. And well, and w- nonetheless, I think we do. Um, I, I I think we can find a common ground in the necessity of reaching our world for for Christ and making a difference for the sake of the gospel. Um, and again, I think we're living in an age where uh, where it's it's not more important because I think sometimes we say that it's like it's never been more important. It's always been as important as it's needed to be. Um, but it just seems more apparent right now that uh, that there's there's a need for that. So I do believe that if we're going to reach the world, I think we need to do that together. Uh, and I think we can find some common ground. So I really am, uh, by the way, um, uh, happy that you were able to join me because that there's some there there are some Catholics, and maybe the the opposite is true as well. But there are some Catholics who don't feel like associating with evangelical Christians and is uh, in their best interest for whatever reason that may be. So really thankful to to have you on to be able to talk about that. So. Um, um, one of the things I said, too, is that we don't want to do that under false pretenses or we don't want to create a false unity. So I'm really anxious to talk to you about some of the differences that we may have, because I believe if we're going to come together, then we just need to have these open conversations about where we may disagree about certain things. Um, yeah. But um, but I don't want to do that and miss the opportunity to hear your personal story. So let's start at the very beginning, at least in terms of your faith. So can you tell me what it was or what happened that brought you about to faith in Christ in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So I, I was raised in like, you know, kind of a basically Christian theistic home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would say my prayers at night and, you know, occasionally we go to church like at Easter or Christmas or something like that. Um, but generally speaking, there wasn't really a lot of activity in the faith realm. Um, when I got into high school, I probably would have considered myself an agnostic if I knew what that word meant. Um, it wasn't that I didn't believe in God. It's just that he had like nothing to do with my life. And I didn't know what I thought. And I, I really was just under the opinion that there was just too much to know Mm -hmm. that even if I wanted to be religious, which I didn't, um, you know, with all of the competing religions, how how would I ever learn enough um, to discern which one was true? So I kind of use that as my excuse to just stay secular and do what I wanted to do. Um, but through the ministry of a couple of evangelical evangelists and apologists who, you know, not only preached the gospel to me, but were able to defend it, um, I eventually became a Christian. I was working at a Christian summer camp and kind of learned the faith by teaching it to kids. Now, are these prominent um, guys or are these just people that you knew or came across? These are just people that just everyday guys. One okay. was a guy I worked with. One was a chimney sweep that came into my house one time and, and uh, pretty much blew my arguments out of the water and then wow. I never saw them again. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I love that. I'm so glad I, I asked that because that's important. You know, you never know. We have to be equipped no matter where we are, no matter who we are. Yeah. And I'll say this too, you know, to, to any of you out there with, you know, the spiritual gift of evangelism, you know, like don't get discouraged. Neither of the people that witnessed to me ever found out that I was a Christian Yeah, and they, and they, and they wouldn't know who I was now. So, um, you know, it, you can make a big impact on someone, even if you don't see a conversion, you know, that, that minute, you know, that you hand them that track. <laughs> yeah. That's important to know that. Yeah. You're planting seeds one way or the other, and you don't necessarily absolutely. get to see them grow. Yep. Absolutely. So um, for about the next decade, I was um, learning more and more about theology, and I became convinced that I wanted to do it, you know, kind of in a professional way, I suppose. And that's when I heard about Southern Evangelical Seminary in North Carolina, that a school started by Norman Geisler, who was one of my heroes of the faith. Mm-hmm. I was way into apologetics. I, I wanted to be like the guys that helped me uh, come into the faith. So now I Geisler wrote a really big, uh, a very prominent book. I'm, I'm just, the title's failing me, but, uh, maybe he wrote multiple, but uh, a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> about a hundred. <laughs> you talking about the Catholic one? No, th- th- I think this one was, um, 
Oh boy, is it was it was uh, why why I don't have enough faith to be uh, uh, oh, an atheist. I don't have I enough faith to be an atheist. Yeah, yeah that was with Frank Turek. Yeah, yeah. Fr- Frank actually wrote that book, but it was okay. using it was using Geisler stuff. So, <laughs> okay. yeah, that's a great uh, introduction to apologetics. Um, I was around when that was when that was being written. Um, but I moved out to North Carolina with my wife and got a master's degree in apologetics. Started teaching at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and when they started the PhD program. I decided I needed to be a part of that because I didn't want my own students going off, getting PhDs and then coming back and you know replacing me. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I, uh, I entered, yeah, I entered into the program. I was in it for, I think three years and I was coming up on being about a year or two away from being done, but I had spent about five years looking really deeply into it. Just a, a couple last areas that were, kind of like hanging on to the back of my mind that I, I, I couldn't quite get my head around as far as defending the faith went. Um, and we'll get into this later probably. The, the two most basic were, um, where did the canon of scripture come from? Like, why do we have these books and not others? Um, I knew how to defend the Bible, but of course the Bible is really a library of books. Right. And, you know, if you're going to defend the Bible as God's word, you really actually need to be able to do it for every single book. And I knew that there was no way to do that on the system that I had been taught. So there was that question that was that was bothering me. And then there was just the issue of different interpretations. You know, we, we drew a very strong line in the sand that, you know, these denominations are okay. They're Christians. You know, our, our, our um, attitude toward them should be that they are brothers. We would never witness to these people. But then these people over here, you know, they are not Christian, you know, because they don't believe the essentials or, or, or whatever. And that was all fine. And it seemed to kind of go along with what everybody thought. But the more I thought about it, I came to realize that, you know, the the number of differences we have is actually massive. And there isn't really any, not much of a clue in scripture as to which ones are okay to disagree on and which ones are not. And Dr. Geisler actually did probably the best job of any evangelical I've ever seen in trying to come up with a system to determine that. Yeah. And it was an utter failure. <laughs> I mean, it just, it now, why, I heard apart. you say this. So why, why do you consider it an utter failure? Is it just because it was too arbitrary? Um, it was too question begging. You know, he, he basically started where he ended. Okay. Um, and yet ironically, the three different times that he published articles on how to find the essentials of the faith, his list never matched. Mm-hmm. All three times he came up with three different lists of essential Christian doctrines. So it, it's, it was just a mess. Um, and anyway, long story short, what I discovered over this five-year period was that the answer to where we got the canon and the answer to where we got the difference between orthodox doctrine and things, you know, the essentials and the non-essentials really historically are both rooted in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started looking more into the history of the church, because history was not something we taught at SES. And, and uh, I think I most looking, people will know this, but I want to cl- clarify and just say the yeah. institution of the church, because I think it's important for, for that kind of classification. And not like the church, universal church, but the, uh, but the, the institution of church. Yeah, I'm talking about the, yeah, the Catholic Church. Yeah, like Catholic they church. are objectively, you know, the only church that existed at that time. Right. And they are the ones who wrote the Nicene Creed. They're the ones that uh, determine the canon of Scripture. And what I discovered was that the narrative that I had been kind of taught that the church started off really good and we could trust it in the early years, but then it eventually started to get worse and worse and worse until Luther saved everybody um, was, was just a false narrative because a number of the things that as a evangelical, I disagreed with Catholicism on 
were already firmly in place long before the canon of scripture was determined, long before the Nicene Creed was written. And so what I just came to realize was I, I can't find a good place to draw a line through history and say, okay, from this point forward, we don't trust the church anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's a very big overview with lots of details missing. But essentially, um, after five years of that and doing doctoral level study, um, I quit my job, I quit my PhD, lost my ministry network, um, <laughs> publishing contracts, you name it, and uh, basically threw it all away and yeah. uh, became a grudging Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I want to ask, there's so much more to, to ask than this, but I am just interested, kind of, what was that period like for you? Was it kind of a, was it a dark period? Was it a lonely period? Was it a period where um, quickly... Uh, Catholic brothers slash sisters came alongside of you? What, what was, because you can only imagine, I can only imagine what it would be like to have this community of faith, have this community of people, and then all of a sudden feel alienated from them almost overnight, and then to to not have them anymore, and then maybe even to like wonder what what that next step is. So what was that like for you? Like that. Yeah. <laughs> Everything you just said, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, yeah, it was really difficult. You know, you, you kind of find out who your friends are. Um, you know, who, who has been here because we happen to agree on certain so things yeah. versus, you know, um, true friendship kind of thing. Um, and I burned a lot of bridges. You know, I, I often tell people I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And, um, <laughs> you too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so a lot of the uh, the joking way that I would approach things, you know, once once somebody's on the other side of that humor, they, they didn't tend to like it quite as much. Um, well, I think and, this is an important point, Doug. I think we've got to get better at this. Uh, certainly, in my experience, we've got to get better at um, at being able to discern, being able to nuance, and being able to handle uh, other perspectives. I don't think we do this very well in the church. Um, I had a uh, a vo- a podcast that exploded. Um, I mean, I don't I don't think I can anything I'm doing yet is viral, but it it exploded in terms of exploded for my standards. Yeah. Uh, with a controversial pa- evangelical pastor that was dismissed from his church um, for a multitude of reasons, and um, boy, I'll tell you the comments that I got from Christians about this guy were just the, some of the most. I wouldn't say this about my worst enemy, and I just I'm not saying that we can't be critical. Even that we can be cynical, because I can be one heck of a cynical son of a gun. But, um, but I do think we have to get to the place where we really become introspective with the way in which we treat others. Uh, yeah, I, I agree, and I, and I don't pretend to, to be there yet. But, sure, me but I do know that you know, kind of the the culture of the keyboard warrior, I think, is is yeah. destroying communication in so many ways because it's so easy to just pop onto somebody's podcast or YouTube channel or whatever and fire off it's the kind of remark that you would just get destroyed for if you did it in person, mm-hmm. uh, because you know that there's no you know there's no comeback. Well, there may be, uh, and it may be valuable to also say something that you would never say to someone's face because you don't actually have the courage to actually say it, but you would sure. say it on a keyboard. So yeah, I think I think there's a a lot lots of stuff that we can learn, and hopefully even in our small way here today, I I hope to do that because I think essentially what we do, um, and this is maybe psychologizing a little bit, but I think what we do is we don't like our worldview messed with. So what we do is we build up walls around us, and anybody that tries to breach those walls, we we shoot them so that they don't come through the wall, rather than to say. Hey, we can still we can still build up our worldview, and you can we can be firm about stuff. But we can meet people on the other side of that wall with no problem, right? Um, we 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 can we can meet our neighbors, and we can talk to them, and we can interact with them. And in fact, in doing so, and this is what people are afraid of, you might have to like make make 
make the walls a little bit further out than, than maybe you've erected them. So I'm not <laughs> afraid. I, I, let's, let's put it this way. I sometimes am afraid of that process. I think we all are to a certain degree. We have a little bit of cold feet with that. Um, but, but I think that that process is absolutely important in terms of human growth, and Christians need to get better at that rather than shutting down conversation, willing to entertain conversations and have conversations, while also standing for biblical truth and being unashamed about that. Um, and, and it's my hope, again, that in our small way today, we'll be able to kind of come together as as a larger community of faith and put aside some of our preconceived notions about who each other are, evangelical, Catholic, because I do think we need each other in a really fundamental way. Um, and, and I don't know what, what you would say to that, but but perhaps you would agree with that. Um, yeah, I do. Um, in fact, it, it, we brought up Geisler earlier. He, he wrote probably the best book on Catholicism from an evangelical uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And, that, and he devotes an entire section of the book to like, what can we do together? And, you know, when you see, you know, people protesting an abortion clinic and the fundamentalists are screaming at the Catholics, like on the <laughs> yeah. sidewalk in front of these women, no you know, it's like you guys are both idiots, you yeah. know, like <laughs> you know, just, uh, you know, you, you, you can worry about the Mary statue later, you know, like this is not the time. Mm. Um, and I see this like walk for life, you know, in San Francisco every year, you know, we're walking down there, you know, trying to represent uh, the church and and fight for the unborn. And we have more fundamentalists screaming at us to go home than we do, you know, LGBTQs out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That kind of stuff is just absurd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's got to stop. But um, perhaps some of the ways that, that we can do that in our own ways to kind of just talk about our 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 differences. Um, so let's get to that. But but just one more thing. Um, so we talked a little bit about that period from evangelicalism to Catholicism. So tell me about kind of that more introduction into the world of Catholicism when you finally, so you made that leap, you go through that dark night of the soul, uh, St. John of the Cross, and you, uh, also a Catholic, by the way, um, nice. you, go, go, well <laughs> you, go, you go through that dark night of the soul and then you you um, you enter into the, the Catholic world. So what did that look like to you? Did you go to Catholic seminary at that point? Did you... Uh, do any kind of catechumen study? Yeah. So by, by the time I had kind of extricated myself from the evangelical world, I, I could see that I was I was either going to become Catholic or Orthodox. Like I, I was not going to stay evangelical. So at, at the time that I became aware strongly of that, I kind of finished off my work and, and just basically tried to get out gracefully. I, I wasn't trying to attack anybody or anything like that. Um, but, you know, tensions were rising. Mm-hmm. Um and so what I did was I joined something called the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. It's RCIA. And every Catholic church in the world should have this. Um, but it's basically how you teach or catechize adults who want to become Catholic. And so it's usually classes and other you know activities and stuff that you do. And what it does is it gives someone the chance to make sure that they're learning what decision they're really being asked to make. Mm-hmm. Because when you come into the church, you're you're asked to affirm that everything the Catholic Church uh, teaches about faith and morals is, uh, you know, revealed by God. I mean, this is a big deal. Um, and so, you know, this isn't the kind of thing where you just raise your hand because you get excited during a, a particular sermon. You know, you don't just go to a Saturday morning class and then five minutes later you're voting on who the pastor is going to be. Uh, you know, this is very, very different <laughs> yeah. than my background. Yeah. Um you know, they actually drag it out. I mean, in a lot of ways, it, it can be kind of annoying, but 
the reason is that they really truly believe in a, in a human free will and that, and that faith is a free will choice and it has to be, or it doesn't work. Mm. And so for adults, um, you know, you need to know what you're doing before you make that decision. So yeah, I spent nearly a year. I mean, I'd already studied a lot <laughs> up until this point, but I spent a year in that right, uh, going to classes every week and, you know, having discussions with the priest and stuff like that. So that when Easter came around, um, you know, I was able to make a, a good, faithful decision. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so that's cool. So um, the I only this is kind of a tongue in cheek question, but I am just curious <laughs> um, because I happen to, uh, like most things, have a little bit of a love hate relationship with it. But I am just interested in what your because I'm pretty sure I can pin the tail on the donkey before, but now I'm just curious. What's your what's your thoughts on Martin Luther? Uh, well, <laughs> kind of just briefly. Yeah. So just just to, to be completely fair, I was never Lutheran. I was never really a proper Protestant. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was raised in evangelicalism, which is basically Baptist theology sure. with a cool website. And, but but which is obviously yeah. an inheritor of so much of what Luther did. Um, yeah, in, in a way. Um, you know, Luther was kind of considered like, you know, sort of like George Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't necessarily have to be the kind of politician that George Washington was or, or share his views on war or a whole bunch of things. But as an American, he's still my hero. Right. Yeah. And, and that was kind of how Luther was for us. I, I didn't care or even know much about Luther's theology or his history. I mean, other than the, the movies that I watched, you know, the big, you know, saintly Luther movies. Um, but after having studied him, I really honestly don't really think he was that great of a guy. Um he, he was uh, kind of a jerk. He was a jerk. I mean, you know, um, and, and that's just like, I think, an objective fact. Um, yeah. And just when, when I saw, you know, when I read the 95 Theses the first time, I was shocked that like, you know, these are actually pretty good. I mean, like, this is pretty, but this isn't Protestantism. Like, this is Catholicism that had had, had some issues in his area mm. in Europe and that the church fixed. Yeah. So why is there still a Protestant Reformation? Well, because by the time they got done fighting, Luther had basically made up um, an entire theology. He, he was adding words to scripture to make it sound like it taught what he taught. He wanted books taken out. Um, yeah. He just wasn't what we were taught he was. Right. Well, and, do you credit, um, I guess this point. is my question at the end of the day, do you credit him a little bit with some of those reforms bringing to light some of those needed reforms for the Catholic Church? Because prior, so. yeah, because post-Luther, um, I don't even remember the name of it at this point, but I, I learned about him in school. Uh, Post-Luther, a group of Catholics comes along that, tri- that really, um, I don't want to use the word militantly, but uh, really um, seriously reforms the Catholic Church toward a more uh, kind of scripture-based uh, program. Yeah, I mean, there, it, it might interest people to realize, you know, the, the name reform, you know, doesn't mean rebel, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> there have been reformers in the church the, the entire time it's existed. I mean, we right. have saints that fought against corruption and bad things going on, you know, and, and they're considered saints now. You know, we have them stained glass windows and the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so Luther had every opportunity to be a great reformer. Like he really could have done that. But at the end of the day, what he really was, was a rebel against the church. He wanted things his way. He wanted people to believe what he believed. He didn't even get along with other Protestants. Um, so th- that's just who he was. Yeah. You know, he, he had a chance to work within the church and, and actually reform it. Instead, he made up his own religion, basically. Yeah, he was a disagreeable dude. That's for sure. 
<laughs> okay, well, let's let's dig into some of the kind of conversation about what evangelicals, t- either typically or um, uh, most pe- people from that perspective, kind of bring up to Catholics, but even also to. I'm just curious how you maybe overcame that or how you dealt with this issue. So some of the objections that evangelicals have to to Catholicism. And so the first one I'll just ask you about that I'm kind of curious is, um, how did you deal with the very clear difference in sacramental theology that the Catholics have that that um, than evangelicals have, um, and uh, and and I really want to ask. By the way, let me just step back and just say I really want to ask these because I think that there. To be fair, I think that evangelicals sometimes have a, a misunderstanding about what Catholics actually believe. So you can help maybe clear some of that stuff up. But then too, we can also kind of nuance nuance where we may disagree, so that we're not creating false unity. But um, a lot of people believe, and I tend I tend to wor- question this too and worry about it um, about the uh, the imposed salvific nature of things like the Eucharist. Uh, if you take Jesus's words literally in John chapter six, where he says, "You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood," and for the Catholic that that means actually taking communion, and for the evangelical that doesn't mean that. So, how do uh, how if you felt like this was a concern from your evangelical background to your Catholic background, how did you? overcome some of the works-based ideas within sacrament and salvation when those two things are tied together. Okay. Well, yeah, you've already kind of imported a, a couple of evangelical presuppositions into your question. So yeah, yeah so undo <laughs> them all, man, demolish. <laughs> so uh, just to kind of back up. So the nature of a sacrament is basically a, a material action that, that has an actual uh, grace, if you will, God's grace kind of attached to it. Yeah. Um, so it's not just a symbol of a past event or a future event, but it, but it actually is, is doing what it symbolizes. So a sacrament is basically a symbol that is actually real also, mm-hmm. um, but, but in a different way. So all of the sacraments have what's called form and matter. The form is like the words, it's the faith, it's, it's the kind of spiritual part. And then they have the matter. They have whatever the stuff is, you know, so for baptism, you know, the, the matter is water, um, for communion, it's, it's the bread and the wine of the, that become the Eucharist. Um, so what a lot of evangelicals, I think, at least in my experience, don't realize is that their view of those, what they usually call ordinances that I like the word sacrament, mm-hmm. um, is actually not Protestant, that <laughs> they're actually going back to the Anabaptist movement, which was like a second reformation, um, that even the Protestants thought they were crazy. Okay, uh, Luther didn't try to get rid of any of the sacraments, um, and, and and neither did most of the reformers. Rather, that was like kind of a weird fringe group that didn't think the sacraments um, were effective salvifically, and therefore, because they were just a memorial, they would repeat them. So, for example, the reason, you know, the Anabaptists, the re-baptizers, um, baptized adults is because they they didn't think that if you didn't already have faith and you weren't already saved baptism didn't do anything right and so all of these people getting baptized as infants um weren't really baptized so that's actually the historical um precedent for the the current evangelical pentecostal like you know baptist side of of christianity right what Uh, they say is it's an outward uh representation of an inward change is kind of typically what they say with baptism or or any of that stuff yeah, so I think the biggest difference is that what what the church has taught, and this is Catholic, Orthodox, like you know, straight from 
you know, the first century, is that God has promised certain graces that are attached to certain actions when they are done in faith. And so we believe that he gives grace that way. Uh, sometimes that grace is salvific. Sometimes it is creative. So like a, the marriage sacrament actually creates a new thing. Like mm-hmm. you're not just two people that signed a contract to live with each other. Um, you know, it actually does something in reality to those people. Yeah. Um, well, let me just interject and, real quick yeah. because uh, because I think like everything you've said there is like, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, th- but I'm just, I'm curious, like w- if we get to the place where we're like, wait a second. Um, and so the wait a second for me personally would be, and I think for a lot of evangelicals would be, um, well, what would you call salvific? So if you would say that there needs to be a partaking of communion to be a Christian, to be saved, well, then does that, um, uh, does that mean that I have to take communion to be saved? Yeah. So, um, I think honestly, we, we have to have a little bit of a conversation about what we each mean about salvation mm-hmm. also, because <laughs> th- this can get really tricky, really like this, this I think is probably the heart of, of all of them to, to really get is that salvation is typically a very black and white single point in time moment of distinction in evangelicalism, whereas for the Catholic, it's more of a process over time. Mm-hmm. So if, if I am a non-believer on my way to hell, I am not saved. If I'm a believer on my way to heaven, I am saved. And whatever is different, whatever makes me go from here to here is salvific. Like that's kind of the evangelical view. Yeah, I want to interject only just to Um, say this, that I absolutely agree with what you're saying. Even if you look at scripture, salvation is used in multiple tenses. So there is a a very robust understanding of salvation, scripturally speaking. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and and even, even when you break it down into justification, sanctification, glorification, even those words are used differently in scripture. So it's a, it's definitely a very theologically rich terminology and it's not necessarily biblical in the sense that I can just flip open the Bible, do a word study and figure out what all these words mean. Um, So for example, justification in in the evangelical circles is typically the moment you go from on your way to hell to on your way to heaven. Whereas when the, when the Catholic just uses justification without uh, qualifying it, they're actually talking about the process of preparing somebody to go to heaven. Hmm. So it takes all of justification and all of sanctification and kind of rolls it into one word. So that can be a huge, I mean, obviously okay. that's like a, a massive distinction right there. Right. Um, Cause even evangelicals that are fiercely committed to the idea that we're justified by faith alone, almost none of them say that works don't matter. I mean, that, sure. that would be a very odd position. Um, and really, for the Catholic, it's a, it's a lot of the same way. I mean, if you think about it, we, we baptize infants. I mean, you can't get less works oriented, you know, than a baby that <laughs> doesn't even know what it's doing. You know? I mean, like, uh, how could you be, uh, you know, less works uh, salvific than that? Um, but because, again, in Catholic terminology, salvation, justification is a process, there are things that affect that process. Mm-hmm. And so... You got to be careful because if you say, well, if I don't take communion, am I saved? Well, it depends why you're not taking it and when you aren't taking it. You know, like if you get baptized and you walk off the altar and before you hit the floor, you trip and hit your head and you die. Well, okay, you never took communion. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you don't get to go to heaven because salvation doesn't work that way. Yeah. If, if you've been baptized for 20 years and you know absolutely that the Eucharist is what Jesus is talking about in John 6 and you're just like, "Eh, I don't care. Well, then why should you think you're saved? Yep. So that's kind of the difference there. Um, yeah, that's totally clear. I get that. So again, I guess I just want to circle back to that question and ask it this way, though. Uh, is it 
is it a commonplace oh this is such a hard way to say this too but i'll just say it and then try to disclaimer is it a commonplace belief though that evangelicals are not saved because they don't take communion in the catholic church is that a commonplace belief among catholics no. and and okay yeah uh, no. well that, that's a simple answer because I, when you say commonplace that even that you're just like what do you even mean because like <laughs> i know commonplace belief in evangelical churches and it's just like did you watch Veggie Tales today? Because that's basically what you're going to get. And so, yeah, um, yeah. so I understand. There's that's a little slippery slope. Okay, so I mean, oh. I got to be honest with you. I mean, I feel like that's really for me personally. And we're not going to be able to get to all of these things because there might be people out there in the Twitter sphere or the YouTube sphere that say, "Well, why didn't you ask about this?" But um, we're not going to be able to get to everything. But that's a big one. I think that a lot of people um, have questions about. And what you just said there, um, defining it the way that you did, makes a lot of sense. I would say. I don't have any disagreement there whatsoever. I think communion, uh, I would not, uh, in the in the justification sense, I would not, uh, from the way that evangelicals use it, I would not impute justification into the uh, the Eucharist. Um, uh, but but I would say what you said. It sounds uh, that that if you are saved, that the you absolutely will want to participate in sacramental uh, uh, observance. Yeah, and, and you know, for the, for the Catholic view, I mean, just, just to tighten the screws a little bit, um, every sin, every sin that can possibly be committed has to be committed with knowledge mm-hmm. and with will, okay? Because that's what our, those are the powers of the soul. That's what makes us human. So to be a human action, you have to know what you're doing and you have to desire it. You have to will it. Yeah. So you can't be forced to sin you can't sin in ignorance in the sense that, you know, you're not going to have something imputed, uh, you know, to you in judgment that you're just totally unaware of. Um, so for an adult, it's, it's a very different kind of thing. There's a lot of stuff that will make you lose your salvation in Catholicism yep. that evangelicals yep. would say, that's nuts. You got to be kidding me. Um, and I get that. Um, but what you don't want to do is, is make the opposite uh, mistake of thinking that, well, every single thing that is there for your salvation has to be had, or you haven't like climbed up to the level of salvation yet. No, it's different for everybody. You know, what, what saves an infant is different than what saves an adult. That's why if somebody walks in here right now and says, I don't want to go to hell, baptize me. I go, eh, give me a year. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> give me a couple of years, buddy. You know, uh, you need to understand this, but we're also, you know, we're not stupid. We don't think God's stupid. He's not a tyrant. Um, if somebody is on their way to get baptized and they get hit by a car, that's a baptism of desire. Like we actually have theology about mm-hmm. that. So a lot of these just kind of quippy things that that I myself came up with against Catholics. I mean, the church knows about these, you know, it's like, we've had 2000 years to think yeah. about this stuff. We're not making up new denominations every five minutes. You know, the church is well aware of what it teaches and it makes so much more sense than it's often given credit for because all all you hear maybe as an evangelical is, oh, well, you know, Catholics say if you don't go to church every Sunday, you go to hell. Well, that's true. But there's also like a million qualifications to that that have to do with your will and your knowledge and your ability and this and this and this and this and this. At the end of the day, God's going to judge you and he's going to he's going to know your heart. Mm-hmm. And, and Catholics fully recognize that. So the fact that this event, you know, evangelical across the street has never truly eaten the, the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus even though Jesus says in John six that you don't have eternal life if you don't do that. Um, God knows that person's heart and he knows the why he knows the what he knows all that other stuff. And all of that can get figured in. Now I'm not allowed 
to change that. I yeah. can't tell the person, oh, don't worry about it because God has, has told me this is what you have to do. But if someone doesn't do that thing and God knows why, he, he, he is not bound to the sacraments the way a person is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, like that, that, that's all covered. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you a question and you can absolutely punt it because it may be too much to get into. Cause there's still so much that I want to ask you about, but, um, I, I just have to ask a sincere question to you here about this is, does it, um, about John chapter six specifically and about what Jesus says there, because if you take Jesus's words, literally, you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you don't have eternal life. Um, then uh, and then if you interpret that passage to mean the the Eucharist, then I think the literal conclusions that you're drawing there is is that you have to take the Eucharist or you don't have uh, eternal life. Now uh, maybe already there you 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 know how to to solve that problem, but um do, but the question actually is is this, um, and you can answer it any way you want or you can punt if it's going to be too long. Uh, doesn't it make much more sense to interpret that not literal, but to interpret it? spiritually, that Jesus is just ask, saying that you need salvation, you need me living and dwelling in your heart through the Holy Spirit, you need to partake of me internally, like you would bread, um, and, that, and that, that's like the common evangelical interpretation of that, of that is that it's not literal, it's, it's spiritual, it's not talking mm-hmm. about Eucharist, it's talking about uh, salvation. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a few difficulties with, with that. Um, number one, Jesus never backs down. Uh, every time he is asked and, and challenged on that passage in the Greek, especially if you watch it, he actually amplifies what he's saying. Um, and even when he loses all of his followers, except for the 12, and yeah. they come yeah. to him and say, hey, tell us what you're talking about. His answer is, are you going to leave or not? You know, he never backs down from from the literal statement. Um, now, we also know that at the words of institution at the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body. This is my blood. And he doesn't hold up his arm. You know, he doesn't open a vein and start dripping. Right. So it's literal in the sense that he really meant it. And it's not just a spiritual metaphor, but it's also literal in the sense that it's a sacramental literalness. Um, and, and that is why John 6 is interpreted as the Eucharist. It's because of what he says at the Last Supper. Right. It's not just because of what he says in John 6. I get that, but uh, then the, the, the other problem is, is that if you do believe that, then don't you have to make the conclusion that if you don't take a, partake of the Eucharist um, from the, the Catholic sense, then you are not a Christian? Well, again, part of it is why. Like, you know, is it because you grew up in a, in, you know, a situation where you were never told the truth? Um, is it a situation where you just have um, what's called, um, what do they call it? Um, invincible ignorance, yeah. <laughs> where, where not that you're just like incredibly stupid, but invincible ignorance means like you literally have had no chance to learn the truth about this. Okay, um, but so where where does that idea come from? Because I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but also I, I, I got you for just a little bit longer and I want to make sure I get the most out of you that I can. But, um, but where does that come from? Because Jesus doesn't really give those qualifiers. So where do those qualifiers come from? Well, he doesn't say, if you don't eat the Eucharist, you are going to hell. Um, what he says is, if you, or, you know, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have eternal life. Right. Um, so in the same way that he says baptism now saves you. Okay, well, that doesn't mean that if someone isn't actually baptized, they have no hope of heaven. Um, it says to confess your sins to the elders, to the church. That doesn't mean that if you don't confess your sins to the elders, you can't be forgiven. Mm -hmm. So God is operating outside of the system that he set up for people. And he is able to look at individual instances and say, okay, this person didn't do what I said to do, but I can look at the reasons why. 
and make a determination that it's mm-hmm. not going to apply in this in this case. So, for example, the thief on the cross, classic, right? Right. Dude didn't do anything, right? Um, and yet he, we all believe he's in heaven. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, a lot of evangelicals will bring up the thief on the cross and say, oh, ho, you know, you, you can't add works to salvation because what did the thief on the cross do? And what I like to say is, well, where did he accept the gospel? The thief on the cross never says anything about anything you're supposed to believe in order to be saved. He just says, remember me in your kingdom. Well, that's not the gospel. Yeah, I've always interpreted that kind of as an internal thing. Like, I mean, he's accepting the gospel in a in a way that's different than the Baptist would say it for sure. But um, but it's but it's a gospel nonetheless, a, a Christocentric understanding of salvation through through Christ. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot in there for that one sentence. You know, I mean, we're, what I'm saying is we're all looking at that instance and saying we know he's in heaven, but we also know that he did not right. follow the salvific pattern that that's your right. church or my church would typically say is required. Okay. And so that, that's kind of where it comes from, is that the church has had to look at that and say, OK, why did that guy go to heaven? Yeah. And and using good philosophy and good theology and other passages and everything else, they've come up with the explanation for, yeah, there are people that are never going to hear the gospel and they still get to go to heaven. There are people that, you know, never receive the sacraments. They're still going to be able to go to heaven, be able to being the key word there. Yes. Um, it yeah, because there's a bunch they, of caveats with all of that, right? Sure. And, and you don't just get it written off, right? Like I remember Hank Hanegraaff back when he was still evangelical um, saying, wait, what is he now? Oh, he converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, uh, I won't get into it, but it's it's pretty sketch. Let me okay. just say that. Anyway, um, you know, he used to say that, you know, if not hearing the gospel got you to heaven, well, then all the apostles should have just never told anybody the gospel and never wrote the Bible. And then everybody would just automatically go to heaven. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like, OK, but God's not stupid. OK, there, there's a difference between taking a perfectly good reason saying, OK, I made you a human. That means you're physical. It means you have will. It means you have intellect. If there's some defect that is not your fault in what you know, or, or what you desire, or your body's even ability to do something, it's unjust to hold that against you. Yeah. You know, so if you're, if you're nailed to a cross, I don't expect you to get baptized or to feed the poor, you know, <laughs> yeah. of course not. Your body has a defect that it can't overcome. Um, so the church teaches that the reason these things happen, the reason that God has all these rules, but that we can't just make it a black and white thing and judge people's eternal salvation is because God can do things that we can't. Yeah. And he, he can operate outside the sacraments, even though we can't. Well, I, I guess the one thing that maybe you're kind of alluding to, but maybe not. So I don't want to put words into your mouth. But the one thing I would say is that there, we need a whole Bible theology about really any topic, but certainly uh, when it comes to salvation, we need a holistic understanding of that uh, based upon the whole mm-hmm. Bible and not just in particular singular verses of scripture or passages of scripture. Yeah. Uh, and, and everybody has to deal with that, right? Because yeah. e- even, even the, the best form evangelical gospel is going to leave out millions of people that are probably going to go to heaven. Um, you know, just because, well, you know, Abraham didn't read the four spiritual laws, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, what about all the, well, and then by the time everybody gets done with all their qualifications, you find out, you know, everybody's got a lot wider tent than it might've sounded like at first. For sure. Which is why we, uh, we'll go to the next thing, which is, uh, sola scriptura. So I, I don't want to dump that on you with not enough time to really dig into that. Um, so, uh, this is where some, I have a, a love hate relation. That's a wrong way to say it. This is where I have a little bit of tension in my spirit. Um, with the Catholic Church that uh, perhaps you can even alleviate for some of our listeners um, is because um, there's there's times where I applaud the daylights out of the Catholic Church for their uh, 
for their fidelity and their love of Scripture and for their history of defending Scripture. And then there's times where I'm just like, ah, but you, you had to do that. <laughs> and um, so, for instance, um, it, Sola Scriptura is one of them in terms of like, for instance, uh, teaching, uh, their their emphasis upon patristic teaching. So um, I don't want to go too fast, so I'm I'll step back from that and just say this, that's um, sola scriptura, for those who don't know, is um, the idea that scripture is wholly sufficient and the only source for Christian doctrine and faith, or the the authoritative, I should say, the authoritative source for doctrine and faith. Um, so uh, I don't want to straw man, so you tell me what you think about that definition, and then you tell me what the Catholic thinks about sola scriptura. Yeah, I think your second definition was was correct because you don't want to say only yeah. right now. Now there are lots, millions of Christians that believe that the Bible is the only source of authority, and and that's so easily defeated. It's not even. I mean, it's almost a straw man to yeah. even accept that. 100%. <laughs> because the Bible, the Bible would have to teach that it's the only source, and it isn't, and it doesn't say that. So you're bam, you're automatically self-destructive. Um, but elevating Scripture to the highest level of authority that can't be superseded. Um, yeah, that, I think that's the right definition. And I, and I think at first it makes perfect sense, right? Because one thing that Protestants and Catholics both agree on is, is that only scripture is inspired by God. Mm. See, that's, so, a, that's an important point, Doug, that I think mm-hmm. most people don't understand. So keep going, but yeah. I just wanted to highlight that. Yeah. So infallibility is a different thing than inspiration. So we're, we're not, you know, there's no Pope you know, that, that is being told what to say by God. Uh, the magisterium isn't being told what to say by God. The people who wrote the creeds, you know, none of them. Um, so inspiration ended with the apostles writing the scripture. Um, I think that where the difference is, is that uh, Catholics believe that God gave the gift of infallibility, which means that in error, that there can't be any errors of faith and morals once the church has declared something definitively. Um and so, although scripture obviously just by nature, you know, would have the highest authority, it has to be interpreted. And so when you have varying interpretations of something and the church says, okay, we are going to dogmatically assert that it's that interpretation of the scripture that is correct, then that becomes what you have to believe in order to be orthodox. Right. And the Protestants don't have that step. And so, you know, this is why you have so many different Protestants that disagree about practically, you know, everything. And I'm not saying that to be over the top, but literally, no, you're you right. know, there, there, there are, you That's know, entire fair. publishing, <laughs> you know, uh, series on, on all the differences that, that Protestants disagree on, e- even the so-called essentials. Yeah, um, I, I can I can understand. Uh, I, I agree 100 percent with that, by the way. I understand, actually, the not only the simplicity, because I don't want that to sound pejorative, but the importance of having something that people can and can firmly agree upon uh, as 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 doctrine um, and having that clear thought out process because I, I think that there's something to that it's only that when we get into patristic um, patristic theology we have a little bit of a slippery slope so how do you guys maybe I'll just do it this way because we could get into some specifics and I will if you want me to but how do you guys solve the issue when the patristic teachings if they um, if they contradict each other, um, how, how do you figure out which one's right? If you're if you're going to allow that to become um, a source of um, of inspiration that is maybe not inspiration, a source of authority that is on par with scripture. 
Mm, okay, so a little bit of a misstatement there. The uh, the church is, is is at least basically divided between the laity and the magisterium. Okay, so the magisterium is made up of all the uh, valid bishops of the world who are in communion with the Pope. All right, they are the ones who, when they get together under certain circumstances, can declare dogma. Mm-hmm. Okay, so dogma is not just one of many doctrines; it's like official doctrine, if you will. Okay, right. So uh, the church fathers aren't part of the magisterium necessarily. Um, they might be very, very wise and people you don't like really want to mess with <laughs> yeah. theologically, um, but they're not part of the magisterium. The magisterium is the living church. Um, so, you know, Augustine got some stuff right. He got some stuff wrong. Aquinas got some, you know, well, he, Aquinas got everything right. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with that one. Yeah, Fanboy yeah. admitted. Um, but in other words, when, when you go back through the patristics, you can, you know, they, they're there in the sense that, hey, look, if all of these massive minds of the church agreed on something, that's pretty good evidence that it's true. Okay. Um, and so they're definitely considered, you know, kind of in the way like maybe scientists are. They're, they're considered authorities because these are the best minds we have. They all agree. That's pretty rock solid. Okay, okay so I have to ask a question here about process. So does the process for that look like? We're going to compare patristic ideas with um, always reflecting back upon Scripture so that when those patristic ideas reflect a scriptural truth, we can produce that as dogma? Well, it depends on what the process is about. Like, let's say something everybody, all Christians agree on, like the Trinity, right? So um, when the Trinity was developed the reason it was developed is because the arians who had basically you know almost taken over the church yeah teaching that jesus christ was not god now the church had always taught that he was god you can look back through the liturgies you can look back through the early church fathers you can see all of that but because none of them were the magisterium it was in a sense still kind of an open debate and that's why you could have arian bishops or arian deacons and um and they weren't just automatically excommunicated so at the council of nicaea the magisterium met and said we got to figure this out and the magisterium not augustine not aquinas you know not cyprian or or, you know just these individual guys but the bishops of the world united with you know the chair of peter got together in a council said jesus christ is god wrote the nicene creed that became dogma so whether or not the arguments looked back over history and whether or not there were certain authorities that were brought forward, lots of, you know, whether it was just good philosophy, whether it was just really good arguments or there was a debate and one guy won, one guy lost, none of that is really laid out. It's just that the magisterium has all of these tools to come to a conclusion. And when that conclusion is reached, we believe that God ordained that and that it becomes an infallible act at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So all of that makes sense to me uh, and and is rather uh, straightforward. Um, My only other question I think about that would be, um, and there's probably 20 more, but one of the ones that comes to mind is that what wouldn't it, it seems to me to be a more clear-cut path to use the Bible as just the authoritative doctrine and then to read the Patristic Fathers as a um, kind of addendum or maybe just to to use it as for further 
edification and further education rather than to go through the process of trying to figure out what patristics said and then trying to create official dogma based upon what what they said. Um, because what we have is a closed canon in Scripture, while we may be interpreting it, um, uh, you know, continually— uh, this, again, this is so hard to say because we're not interpreting it continually, but we're trying to do the best that we can to constantly come to a greater understanding of what is there. Um, uh, it, it is a closed canon, right? So having that closed canon and, and the Council of Nicaea did it for a very uh, firm reason is because we needed to have something that we could look to um, exclusively for, for what I would call dogma, um, and, that's, and that's scripture. So it almost seems that um, because you have like Cyprian um, saying that there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church, that becomes dogma. And but then you got a Lateran Council later saying, uh, well, maybe we need to rethink that and maybe that shouldn't be church dogma. And it just would seem that the process is much more clean cut, but more importantly, much more, uh, much more biblically um, much more biblically sound just to use scripture solely as your as as your authoritative source for dogma. Yeah, okay, so there's a lot there. Um, for one thing, doctrine and dogma does develop. Okay, so there's a sense in which we can say Jesus Christ is God. Uh -huh. And that's dogma that's never going to change and never can be changed. But we can also write 10,000 page books about what it means for Jesus to be God, right? And so that's what, that is what the theologians are continually doing. Mm -hmm. You know, the church still teaches that there's no salvation outside the Catholic church. You say, well, wait a minute. You just told me about all these people that could go to heaven and that aren't even Catholic. Yeah. Because the development of that dogma points to the fact that the, the church is necessary for salvation, but God can, you know, use the church just like God can use Christianity to save people that aren't necessarily exactly members of it and that kind of thing. So there, there's a big, number one, there's a big difference, or, sorry, there's a big difference between dogma changing and dogma being developed mm -hmm. um, to look at it. And, and, you know, some people are going to argue that, no, you know, that's not what happened. It was a distortion. Okay, well, we can have that talk individually, but um, I think there's a couple things just to kind of throw out there. We can take any one of them you want to. Um, first of all, sola scriptura, again, sounds very neat, but but the the fruit is is how you judge something, right? And, and sola scriptura has been more divisive and produced more divisions in Christianity than anything ever, right? I mean, th there's an unbelievable number of disagreements that come from just using the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, so I get that it seems cleaner, um, but it doesn't really work out. Now, I don't think that the answer is add in, you know, 700 volumes of church fathers and then, and then try to figure it out, right? And so that, that's what the magisterium is for. The magisterium is there so that when a, an... Uh, item of disagreement has to be settled, there's a organ of the church that can actually do that mm -hmm. on the fly, living and deal with it. And as far as being biblical, I think that that is, that's exactly what we see actually in scripture, because although most of scripture is, is the data from which we get our theology from, we also have the book of Acts, right, where you have theological debates arising and being settled. So in Acts 15, when there was the question, you know, whether or not you have to become a Jew, basically, and, and go through Jewish Old Testament law in order to be saved. They didn't just go back to the Old Testament and, and go, oh, here it is. It says right here. Um, instead, the leaders of the churches got together. They talked about it. They heard both sides. And then the bishop of Jerusalem stood up and said, okay, here's the answer. 
And from then on, that has been what Christianity has been about and believed. So the church just never stopped doing that. And, and that's what the councils are for. That's the ordinary way that, that dogma is developed, is that the church meets in a council. It produces definitive statements on questions that need to be settled, and then it moves on to something else. So it's not that every time we have uh, a Bible study, you know, we're also whipping out our 30-volume church fathers and making sure that we've read everything the church has ever said. I can just take the catechism out, and it's going to say, here's the answer. And then if I feel like digging deeper, I can go into all those patristic sources and philosophers and theologians and all that. But but I don't need it in order to interpret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it's an interpretive tool, I, I like I'm I'm, you know, I, I totally get that. I understand that um, because we're we're needing to uh, dev- because we got this sense right, especially in the, in the American West today. Well, the Bible's open for interpretation. It can mean whatever you want it to mean, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, because it means something different to everybody. I can't tell you how many times right. I've heard people <laughs> say that. And the truth is, is, no, it actually has a literal and, uh, a, well, maybe not literal, but it has a specific not meaning. John 6, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it has a specific, gotcha. literal literal in another sense, literal in the sense that there is a there is a direct meaning based upon its literal context and in history and in terms of what it was literally meaning coming from uh, what Jesus literally meant by saying what he said. I mean, it's yeah. undeniable, too, though, right? Just to jab back at you, it's undeniable that Jesus was not being totally literal in everything that he said. Um, uh, so, uh, but nonetheless, the, the point is, is that like, um, that there, there does need to be a, a, an interpretation based upon the facts and the, and the, uh, the reality of scripture. And I guess I'm just still saying, I'm, I, I just keep wondering, like, um, if it's an interpretive council, okay, I'm cool with that. If it's something that we're trying to hold um, to the same degree as Scripture, um, then I have a little bit of an issue with that, only because there's so much room for human error. Now, there is in everything, right? But um, but there still needs to be the ability for the individual to come to an understanding of Scripture that might diverge with a council that has come together and said, well, this is what that means. But what if, what if they're wrong, right? So like, so, and I'm not saying, okay, so just get rid of them altogether, but, um, uh, but what is the ultimate purpose of it if ultimately what we all have to do is we have to hold our, 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 our doctrine close to our heart and make sure that before God, we all individually stand before him rather than as a collective, we individually stand before him and can hold the truth um, with as much integrity as possible as an individual. Well, I mean, that's kind of the Protestant, you know, ideal, right? But um, I just don't really see that, <laughs> honestly, because we know from scripture that there there's false doctrines, right? There's mm-hmm. false Christ, there's false prophets. Um and because we don't have Jesus walking around right now, able to do miracles and prove that that he's he's the one and not this other guy, um, you know, dogma is is how we find that out. You know, is it okay to believe that Jesus is not God? I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they read the Bible and they they interpret that Jesus isn't God, and they think that they're saved by you know this this Michael the Archangel incarnate as a human being. You know, Mormons think that Jesus is Lucifer's brother. Um, and that God used to be a guy on another planet. So I think that, you know, it's, it's one thing to go, okay, well, let's, let's argue about what exactly the Eucharist is, or, you know, these kind of side things, but 
to some degree, I, I think that the church's purpose is to lead people into the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't have any way of knowing which of our interpretations is right, you know, uh, we can be led into error. And and I don't think that God's just going to say, well, you know, you tried. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, um, I see this both ways, though, because at the end of the day, too, the teaching of infallibility, like the church, what they come up with as dogma is infallible. Well, until they change it again, um, is that's a little bit prickly to me. Yeah, but what, what, when has that happened? So so is that not something that, that does happen? Because is it, well, okay, so let's step back. Is it not a teaching of the Catholic Church that the Catholic Church is infallible? Well, that's, the uh, the magisterium is infallible under certain conditions. Okay. The church isn't infallible because then I'd be infallible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, okay. Um, yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is, is that, again, it's, it's the difference between the development of a doctrine and changing the dogma that that's what's different dogmas can't be changed um the the teaching about them can develop so that we know deeper and deeper what is meant by the terms or whatever um again just like you know you can say the nicene creed in in 30 seconds but you can spend the rest of your life just studying the trinity and not grasp all of it yeah um it's a this it's a prickly thing though right because it's i see it i kind of see it both ways i see like we're all infallible. I don't think that it helps us to say that there's a council that just magically becomes infallible because we all have issues where we can, um, where we can realize that we made a mistake on, on things. Um, but then I also realize that there's a great benefit in having a council of people who say, this is what we officially believe um, as a church. This is, this is what good hermeneutics looks like. If you want to interpret this passage effectively, this is the way in which you do that. So, um, so I don't know. I think there's like, I think there's like this middle ground outside of just declaring a council of human beings infallible. Well, just, just to kind of give you more of like the the Catholic mindset, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a skeptic is going to say the exact same thing about the apostles in scripture, right? Well, the Bible was just written by men. So maybe there's mistakes in it. Like, yeah, that, to a skeptic, that seems okay, <laughs> um, but to me, it doesn't. Like, and, and it shouldn't be even in any evangelical. Right. You know, God gave certain men infallibility under certain circumstances, and and every Christian believes that, unless they're just total liberal, and the and the Scripture is just the writings of man, and you know, we can't trust it any farther than we can prove it. Right. Um, and I think that for the Protestants, you also got to kind of wrestle with the fact that you know we're not just talking about you know, 13th century doctrines that, that you might be able to, to, you know, get your way out of if you don't like them. Um, it was a church council that determined the canon of scripture. It was a church council that determined the nature of the Trinity and the incarnation and all this stuff that you have to believe, even if you're a Protestant. So what you lose by saying infallibility died with, with the last apostle is almost everything about Christianity, (laughs) you know, everything becomes open for interpretation and and you can't authoritatively say that any of it's wrong. Yeah. Um, And so you're not just losing your, you know, these extra biblical beliefs. You're not just losing biblical beliefs or interpretations, but you don't even have the canon of scripture anymore. How do you even know that that the books that are in there are really inspired? Yeah. So for me, it was kind of like a reverse engineering. Like what, what am I really having to give up? If I think that God didn't put infallibility in the church, at least in some instances, um, and there's no reason to think that he couldn't do that because that's exactly what it did for yeah. the apostles. I mean, yeah. Peter was a total screw up, but he still wrote first and second Peter. And when he did it, 
an infallible document came out. Yeah. So th- there really is no there to me, there's not really very much of a difference yeah, I, other I, than yeah. the fact that they're not inspired. I, I agree with that totally. Um, however, I just wondered about the because uh, I think it, obviously I think that the, the possibility for that still exists. Now, the most to be totally honest, and you alluded to this, the way that most modern day evangelicals uh address that is just by saying, okay, well, then infallibility doesn't exist, which, um, which I think is a major, major problem. Um, and I don't think that it, it serves anybody well. Um, but, uh, but, but I still, I guess, and this is maybe a, a discussion for another day because it'd take us down a long road, but I still have questions as to how that infallibility is discerned and imputed um, is, is, is a little bit of a question for me. Um, but because we do have to move on, let me just ask this final question because this is the big one, and I can I can imagine that uh, you're going to uh, dismantle some other presuppositions that I may have in this as well. But so Mariology, all right. So there's the talking point that I've heard from so many evangelicals, and I'm going to say that you don't even have to destroy this presupposition because I know better. Um, but I want I want to hear it from you um, that Catholics worship Mary as a um, as a as a god. That, that they worship in, they don't just honor Mary and venerate Mary, but they actually worship her as a co-redemptress and, and as a kind of like co-God with Jesus. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the easier answer is just to say, no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and move on. Right. Yeah. Um, but as, as someone who, and, and I don't think I ever was like that confused about Catholicism, but um I, I will freely admit without question that, you know, Catholics can be pretty over the top <laughs> when it comes to, to Mary and devotion. Um, but there's a number of things that I think kind of mitigate like the knee jerk response that a lot of evangelicals have. Um, and I think part of it is to realize that the Catholic hierarchy of the world is, is a lot deeper than I think it is for a lot of evangelicals. We don't just have creation and God. Um, Creation and God are distinct, of course, completely distinct. I mean, that's like super Catholic doctrine. Um, but the, it's not completely flattened out either on the creation side of things. There are things that are higher, angels, there are saints, there are people that form kind of a hierarchy um, in the Christian world. And the person who is at the top of it is the mother of Jesus, the mother of God, um, which is also dogma, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there are levels of you know, veneration, whatever you want to call it, that I think a lot of evangelicals just aren't comfortable with because we tend to have zero or 100 and that's it. You know, there is nothing in between. Um, and so when you see somebody, you know, carrying around a statue of Mary or putting flowers on it or singing, you know, Ave Maria in church, it just, you just sort of, ah, you know, like it just makes you lose your mind. Right? <laughs> because as evangelicals, we don't do those kinds of things for anybody except God. You know, in fact, we won't even do some of it for God, you know, like especially the statues. Right. But don't you, I mean, let's just I know this is a loaded question, too. But don't you think that there's a um, there's an important sentiment there to say, um, obviously, I know we don't need to freak out and overreact, but there are some things that obviously are solely relegated to God. And I got to be honest with you, I've seen um, now this is a more a kind of a non uh, I don't want to say non-traditional, but I've seen Mexican Catholics who sometimes intermix superstition with their Catholicism mm-hmm. do things that really make me uncomfortable with the way that they 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 literally worship Mary. Well, I don't I don't like 
putting literally worship at the end of that, because the only way you can know that is to know their hearts. Um, and we don't. We well, don't I'm just talking that. about the words that come out of their mouth when they're singing songs to her and stuff like that. Okay, so do, do they ever say we worship you? Um, no, but they, yeah. they give, so, her, give her divine attributes that belong to God. Okay, well, we, we can look at that, too. I think that's a different issue, different problem. But as far as like the veneration goes, yeah. um, one thing I, I always try to do, um, and I got a whole book on this, by the way, which I'll, I'll do my commercial later. Yeah, yeah. Um, is I, I first try to tie it into something that is a little bit more normal with the evangelical experience. Okay. So for example, in my good old Southern Baptist conservative church back in North Carolina, you know, on certain national holidays, you know, we would sing as part of our hymns, you know, songs to America, basically, you know, and we'd have the flag up there behind the altar and we'd be saluting and putting our hands on our hearts and doing all these kinds of things. And that was considered totally normal because we're just, you know, we're a good American church, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that kind of makes me uncomfortable too, by the way, but nonetheless. Well, yeah. And that's what I'm getting at is like, imagine if you didn't have that strong nationality and you came into the church and, and you're watching these Baptists pray and, and, and worship God and sing songs to Jesus. And then all of a sudden they're singing songs to a flag <laughs> yeah. and, and, they're, and they're, you know, it's like, well, wait a minute, you just, you just worship God by singing a song and now you're singing a song to a flag. So obviously that's worship, but see, logically that doesn't actually connect. Okay. Um, just because, you know, all, you know, all singing doesn't become worship just because some singing is worship. So there's at least room there to understand that, yeah, we can do a lot of things toward Mary, if you will, that we would also do toward God um, and, and not cross the line into worship. Now, exactly what that means i mean you, you know you can get into dulia hyperdulia and all of these you know catholic distinctions and, and theologies yeah whether or not that you know mexican grandma up there crying and bringing flowers to the statue and, and all that kind of stuff is is worshiping i get that it kind of looks like that um but if there is still a distinction in their mind between what is owed to God and what is owed to Mary and what is owed to other saints and what is owed to each other and, and to the American flag and whatever else, um, I think there's a much wider range of acceptable actions than most evangelicals would admit Sure, because we're just not used to it. I'm, I'm for it until they cross the line of like in, um, uh, perfection or perpetual virginity and stuff like that because that's just stuff we don't know. Uh, that's that stuff that comes from scripture. Well, not everything we know comes from scripture, though, right? So, you know, you, you've got very old traditions that that argue for certain interpretations of scripture that would work. Um, if you've got an issue with with some kind of divine attribute that can't possibly uh, function even by analogy with a human being being said of Mary, that that would be a different problem. Yeah. Um, but again, I don't see anybody, at least nothing official in the church. I mean, there, there may be some person that, that thinks something wrong or writes a book even. Um, but you don't, you don't have people saying that Mary is infinite. You know, she, they don't say that she's eternal. They don't say that she's the creator. Uh, you know, the, the attributes of God are, are not applied to Mary. Is she, sin is she sinless to the Catholic in the way that Jesus is sinless? Not in the way that, no, because he, he was sinless by nature. She was protected from sin by being um, immaculately conceived. And so without the stain of original sin at birth, um, and then also not having committed any sins. Mm -hmm. I would say Jesus could not have because by nature he was God. Right. So 
there's no way he could have possibly sinned because it's just logically and metaphysically impossible. So I don't think Mary was sinless in that way. It was more by fact. Okay. Is she sinless? Is she, so maybe I'll ask this and then, but basically I'm asking you to define what you mean by that. Is she sinless in the way that I am sinless? Well, you're not sinless. I'm well, I'm sinless, like in the sense that I've been justified before God in the evangelical way of understanding things. But how, so, how, yes, so, yeah. so define for me how she is sinless from the Catholic perspective. So the, the, um, the salvation that Jesus won for us on the cross is applied to Mary at her conception. So that's the doctrine of immaculate conception. Okay. Is that is that basically like what happens to a baby when it gets baptized, you know, in the evangelical world, you know, what happens when you say the sinner's prayer, what, whatever that moment is where original sin is gone and now you are saved, that happens to her uh, in the womb. So she comes out sinless, but then it also is the case that she never actually commits a sin. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's what we believe. Okay. So, and, um, and I know, I don't want to go too, too far down this rabbit trail because I know you, and it's not a rabbit trail, but too far down this road, um, because I know I got to let you go, but, um, where do you, do you believe that there is sufficient biblical, um, evidence for that belief? Um, no, I, I don't think there's almost, you know, almost any, okay. <laughs> um, you know, that really I appreciate comes, the response. Yeah. Well, I mean, but again, that, that's kind of like, you know, arguing with a Mormon that they can't prove their beliefs from the Bible. Well, of course they can't because they get it from the Book of Mormon. So the question really is, is the Book of Mormon trustworthy? Correct. Um, so in the same way, um, you know, you can say, well, she, you know, she was called full of grace. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, an interpretation of that would, would be like the Immaculate Conception. Um, but no, I, I don't think it's there. I don't think it's not there. Um, I don't think the scripture talks about it one way or the other. So nobody really has the high ground there. Um but when we look at church history and we look at what people, what the church has pretty much always taught about Mary, then it clearly falls on the side of sinlessness. So, you know, that is one of the things, you know, there are a couple, you know, pretty strong dogmas of the church that, that don't have really super great scriptural support. Um, but again, the canon of scripture doesn't have scriptural support. So, you know, for, for me, that's why it keeps coming back to that is mm-hmm. that once I realized how God worked out the canon and orthodoxy, and I decided, you know what, if the church wasn't infallible, we're all in trouble. Yeah. So much of the rest of this just becomes such a non-issue because um, I think that's in order for me thing. to argue successfully against the magisterium here, well, then I'm getting rid of all this other stuff that I don't, I don't want to get rid of. So, um, yeah, but I, I don't have any problem with the fact, yeah, there are some things the church teaches that if all you ever did was read, you know, the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, you would probably not come up with this as being a dogma yeah that's true okay well i i would just say this i uh, and i'm just going to do this for example's sake not to throw a bomb out there but um i think that there is little sparse partial uh but i do think there is some evidence to uh for a closed canon within scripture um so for instance uh um i believe it is oh i I'm going to say Paul, uh, Paul says uh, something to the effect of uh, he's talking about um, another apostle's writing, and he equates that with Scripture. Yeah, he's uh, talking about Peter's writings. Peter's writings, really, okay. Really yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm just doing Peter this says that about Paul. So Peter says that about Paul. Peter says that about Paul. That's right. Yeah, he yeah. says his, diff- his writings are difficult to understand, and as, as are is the, all the, the scriptures. scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, yeah. That equ- that is, there's that equivalence between other scripture and what, what Paul is writing. So we have that kind of internal evidence of the scripture stating that the scripture um, 
is uh, that what we have in terms of scripture is what the church considered as scripture at that at that time. Um, yeah, but ultimately, it becomes an issue of, of history because most of the books don't have that. Mm-hmm. And even, even if we know, you know, going in, okay, well, the writings of St. Paul are all scripture. Okay, but which ones are his writings? There's there's disputes about that, too. Yeah. Um, you know, the Gospels don't name their authors. Uh, James, you know, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, you know, there's been questions about who really wrote, you know, a lot of these things. Um, so I just say, like, I, believe me, I've tried very hard <laughs> to reverse engineer the New Testament canon in order to avoid, you know, having to trust the church. And, and they're just, there's no way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the best, very best writers on the subject end up basically admitting somehow God told everybody what it was. Yeah. Because there's just, there's just no um, scientific, if you will, method um, to get the New Testament canon that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Um it, uh, so I I agree with that, and I think um, ultimately I was just saying that just to kind of say there's going to be discrepancies, as there will be in or disagreements, I should say, um, with as there is in almost any area of life. But I will say that as I have tried to charitably investigate and think on the Catholic Church, the differences between them, I really have come away with. Um, with an appreciation, the more I have done that. It doesn't mean that I agree with everything. Um, I don't, I, I love my wife and I don't agree with everything she does. But, hey. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I have a superficial understanding of Catholicism, have a deeper understanding of church history. Um, and I've loved it as I've studied it more. I came away with an appreciation for liturgy. I think, quite frankly, if I could fight for anything, um, I, I would say that there needs to be a, a an evangelical liturgy. I think we've desperately lost reverence for God because we've absolutely done away with all sense of liturgy in our churches, and I don't know that we understand reverence anymore. And I almost I almost admire the Catholic Church for that sense of reverence that they've protected that I think comes at least from liturgy and probably more. Um, and then I, I would say too, and I may get in trouble for this one, I have an appreciation for confession. Um, it's an obvious biblical thing that evangelicals have a problem with too. Now there's some particulars about confession that I, that I um, take issue with with the Catholic Church, but it is undeniable that confession is a biblical reality that evangelicals don't practice at all like at all. And at least the Catholic Church is trying to find a way in which to practically obey that that version of, uh, that portion of scripture which uh which is admirable to me. So I guess what I'm saying at the end of the day is that the more I've looked into it the more I've found reason not to just um ridicule but I found reason to to admire the Catholic Church and um and what it has stood for throughout the ages. Nice. Yeah, that's great. Um yeah. and I and I, I, I think that, that- you know, that's, I think that's pretty common in a a lot of ways. You know, I I know very, there's there's really only kind of a fringe element of of Christianity that just hates everything about the Catholic church, you know? Um, And especially once they actually, like you said, do a little due diligence and actually learn some stuff. um, It's, it's pretty hard to have that big of a problem with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. So with that being said, um, I would love to turn people on to some of the work that you've done that will help them kind of take maybe not the same journey that you've even taken, but at least take the journey into a deeper understanding away from our conceptions of Catholicism so that we can have a deeper understanding of what Catholicism actually is. So uh, introduce us to some of the stuff that you've done, some of the books that you've written. Cool. Yeah. Um, so first of all, just my website, which is kind of like the hub for everything else, YouTube and everything else that I do is just douglasbeaumont.com. Um, so if you go there, you can find everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and then I would just say like as far as the some of the works I've done, um, the uh, the two books that I'm that I'm most proud of um, as far as like what you're talking about is number one it's it's called Evangelical Exodus, um, which sounds really contentious, um, <laughs> but it, it was actually an evangelical that came up with that title, so you can read about that in the book. Um, but there were a bunch of us from Southern Evangelical Seminary that have since become Catholic. Uh, some have risen pretty high in the ranks. And this is a book of the story of, of 10 of us. Um, and, you know, if you're into conversion stories, a lot of people like that stuff anyway. So that's kind of a cool book for that. Yep. But even if you skip all of the conversion stories and the personal stories, at the end, there's four chapters that go over sola fide, sola scriptura, orthodoxy, and the canon of scripture. And that's really where all the meat of the uh, arguments come in. So that, that's where I would direct somebody that really wanted to know kind of the arguments for Catholicism. Um, and then there's this. Uh, this is called With One Accord, uh, put out by Catholic Answers. And this is a book that basically teaches quite a bit of the Catholic faith in a way that will make sense to Protestants, uh, especially evangelicals, because it takes principles that they already understand or at least have some familiarity with and kind of puts them together with what the Catholic Church teaches just so that it kind of gets around that knee-jerk reaction of just weirdness, you know, like, oh, that just seems really weird. Okay, yeah, but you do this weird thing. Oh, yeah, we do. You know, now we can kind of talk about it with, yeah. with a little bit more uh, uh, open arms. Mm -hmm. So whether somebody is a Catholic that wants to explain their faith to someone that maybe they don't really speak the same language with and they're having a real hard time connecting, um, or an evangelical that just wants to understand Catholicism more from the way the Catholic thinks rather than the way a Protestant thinks about what Catholics think <laughs> um, with one accord would be really good for that. Okay. That's great. So what I'll do is I'll link those down below uh, so that people can access those and, and purchase those things. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate um, all the work that you've done and I appreciate your willingness to come on today. And more than that, your, your willingness to try to bridge that, uh, that gap, that divide, if, if you will, uh, to try to bring the church together at a time where the truth needs to be preached more than, um, uh, more than we probably realize, but as all, but as just as much as it is always needed to be. So, uh, so thank you. I'll for give you a good old Baptist way. amen on that one, brother. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. All right. God bless. All right. Bye-bye everybody. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. IndieThinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>